Good morning, everybody. Love to uh, welcome you to the House of Bricks podcast, where we are teaching entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business leaders how to use life's experiences for them instead of carrying them with them and letting them slow them down. So today, I'm very honored to have a special guest. First of all, Mr. Raymond, thank you for your service. A very decorated military man, served our country, and has a great story. So Donnie, welcome to the show. Thank you. You and I met about, man, I'm getting old. I think it was 15, 16 years ago, 2005. How many is that? 17, 18 years. I'm just doing math in my head real time here. When we met, you had just started your personal training business. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, your upbringing, and kind of you know your story. I was born in a in a town called Fitchburg, Massachusetts, about forty five minutes to an hour outside of Boston, and very very heavy Canadian uh, city. Played a lot of hockey growing up, and uh, after high school went to college. wasn't really feeling it that much. I was computer science major. I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. I was working at a bar in Boston while I was in college. And the general manager got a big promotion and he pulled me and a few other guys out to San Diego and they were going to pay for our last year of school. While I was there, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. A friend of mine that was from Boston, he moved to San Diego the same time I did. And he was an Air Force Academy grad and he transferred into the SEAL teams. And right after he got done the infamous Hell Week, he knocked on my door and he said, come with me. He brought me down to the SEAL base and... I was like, what did you bring me here for? And he said, the the whole time I was here, all I could think of was this would be perfect for Donnie. Uh, Why would he say that? Did you have an edge to you? You're super disciplined. It's not the best recruiting message. Hey, come down to hell week. So (laughs) what made him think you were a good fit? I don't know. He just, it was one of those things where he just, while he was going through training, he he just thought it fit. And a lot of people don't, they think the SEAL teams are all a bunch of Dolph Lundgrens and Everybody's 6'4", 225 pounds, no body fat. It's not. It's more triathletes, I think. It's endurance and then putting up with the cold water. And the whole Hell Week thing, it's not a physical torture. It's a, they make you, they exhaust you. And the goal is to see if you can still think when you're exhausted. That's the main goal. Were you um, in shape at the time? Were you doing triathlons? What? I was actually. Okay. I was. All right. Yeah. So Fishburg is the second hilliest city in the United States. So a lot of cyclists come from Fishburg. So I used to do the Mount Washington Hill climb, eight miles straight up. One year I qualified for the Pikes Peak race. So it's just not from training. It's just a really hilly city. So growing up, you ride up hills all the time. Right. You just get that endurance in your legs. Okay. So you show uh, up there. What happens next? I'm a big skeptic of a lot of things. Oh, you uh, know, when I, I, I would never imagine that. When I walked in there, I got deja vu. Like I'm getting the hair on my arms is sticking up right now. I got that overwhelming sensation that I belong there. It was the craziest thing ever because I don't believe in that stuff. We took a walk around for about 30 minutes and then he introduced me to a recruiter. I signed up right there and then. Right there. And did they shave your head on the spot? <laughs> no, uh, I had to wait nine months to go in. There was a, de- there was a uh, recruiting delay. 
So you're not really a big hype guy, but there are some Navy SEALs out there that have used their experience, so to speak, to write books and be popular on Instagram and YouTube. How much of that is reality and how much of that is just hype and marketing? It's probably 50-50. In the the community, you're supposed to be the silent warriors. You weren't supposed to tell people you're a SEAL. We used to lie all the time, like, oh, what do you do for a living? We used to lie about it. And... You know, it was funny because we would we would wear civilian clothes on base and like to the people that were in the military, like, well, they're the only guys allowed to wear civilian clothes on base. So everybody knew who you were anyway. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was always be silent, you know, in the, and in the background. And nowadays, you know, with social media and things like that, guys have some people have written legit books and some people write some B.S., so it's, I'd say it's about 50-50 out there that people just are trying to make money. They feel like it's owed to them because they serve their country and they get out and there's no real job qualifications. I, when I went, to co- I went to college, I went back to college after I got out and one of the professors told me, he goes, the only qualifications you are is to be an assassin. You got to go work for the mama. I was like, that's why I'm here. Exactly. So I want to learn some marketable skills. Did you serve on any active missions that you can share? Kind of maybe an intense situation that you were in or something you can share with our listeners? We had quite a few. So there was um, being put in the engineering department because of my uh, science education background. I worked on a special project. It was back then, it was called a fast attack vehicle. It was the, if you Google it, you'll see it either fast attack vehicle or it's called DPV, Desert Patrol Vehicle. They had some troubles with those because they were extremely maintenance intensive. Because what you, what they did is they took some off road race cars and they put a third seat on them and put a bunch of guns on them. So <laughs> they were way heavier than a race car. Right. And then when you're driving in a desert, you're taking a finely tuned engine and you're shaking it for hours upon hours. So they need constant care. And they didn't have enough people to become like mechanics and do their warfighting, take care of the responsibilities at the same time. They put me on that project and ended up working on it for about 13 years. Wow. So Uh, when you say there in the desert, were you in the Middle East somewhere or... Yeah, so I was on SEAL Team. The SEAL teams are split up by their geographic region. So, like, SEAL Team 1 is not on a higher a hierarchy of SEAL Team 2. Okay. They cover different geographical areas. I requested SEAL Team 3 specifically to work on those dune bugs. And SEAL Team 3 covered the Middle East. Okay, so you spent some time so in the Middle East. A lot of time in Kuwait, Iraq. Okay. You can't stay a warfighter for too long. What they do is they... They'll pull you off and give you what's called shore duty. So I went to become an instructor. They don't want you operating overseas for years upon years because that changes you and they want to keep it like, you know, they're trying to maintain your mental health. Okay. It's important you bring that up, like the mental health aspect. That's where I was going. So you've got like your combat fighters, right? And they're in combat. Something breaks down, right? And your team's defenseless. Are you the guy that are like, hey, Donnie, get this thing working? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, uh, I, got, I got quite a bit of attention in Afghanistan for that very thing. So, you know, also driving vehicles through that really fine dirt is not good for your, for your vehicle either. And these are off-road race cars. They're not like you don't have hoods and all the filters. Um, like one mission, we were on a target, and 
I was the lead vehicle. And, you know, we're on night vision goggles and stuff like that. We pulled up on a target. There was, there were our, there were two fast attack vehicles and then a couple of Humvees. And we were, we were uh, attacking a target. And when we pulled up on target, we moved the vehicle. The vehicles have a lot of guns, a lot of very large guns on them. So you, you kind of maneuver the vehicles where if anything hits the fan, the, the guys on the inside can be like, Hey, you know, game on, take everybody out and you can, you can destroy buildings. Right. So the second car pulled up behind me and the other driver were on the radios. He's like, Hey, the car's not driving well. And I could hear it sputtering. And I knew from, I, I got built these cars with the manufacturers. So every nut, bolt, wire I had dealt with. So I knew them very well. And I could tell, I'm like, that, that's a clogged carburetor jet. So I, middle, it was like three in the morning. We're on target, actively fighting. I jumped out of the car, ran over, unscrewed the carburetor jet, pulled it out, sucked the dirt out of it, put it back in, car fired up immediately, and then I jumped back in and we continued on with the mission. So for the people listening on audio, when you say suck the dirt out of it, did you actually literally suck the dirt out of it? <laughs> yeah, so a carburetor jet, you know, they're like this long and they're full of holes and the right. gas flows through the end, and then it turns into a spray at the bottom. So that's what sprays into the cylinder and starts to, it creates like a, a fog of gas, and that's what ignites inside your thing. So inside this tube, a piece of dirt must have got in and got stuck where it sprays out. So I literally unscrewed it, put it in my mouth, and sucked the dirt out, and then spit it on the ground and screwed it back in in the car. Wow. That's unreal. Yeah. And uh, to life, so. you know, the purpose of our podcast, right, is to help people use life's experiences for them. It sounds like you've had a lot of positive experience in the military. You're a Navy SEAL. You were in service for 13 additional years after that. What brought you into the personal training business? And that sounds very minimal because you're way above a personal trainer. So just walk us through that transition, what motivated you to get into it and some of the experience that you had being a Navy SEAL, being in those types of situations that helped you make that transition. We spent eight months in Afghanistan, came back here. They wanted to get some of us out. So there's a Navy parachute team. It's, a, it's like a parachute demonstration team. They use it to recruit. Because a lot of young kids out there that maybe think about being SEALs that think we're all like superhero Dolph Lundgrens, you know, they send us out there to meet these, to meet kids and, and that you want to recruit for the SEAL teams or, and let them know like, hey, we're, you know, we're just normal people. They put me on the Navy parachute team and one jump, my parachute, it didn't malfunction, but, you know, when you have a parachute, like the GI Joes with the trash bag on top right. and you throw it up in the air and it comes on, it goes whack. Right. And then it like slows immediately. You can't have that when you're jumping from 25,000 feet, you know, you're going 180 miles an hour. You can't have that thwack and stop. So there's a little thing on the bottom of the parachute that when you pack it up in there, it makes the parachute open. You, you decelerate slower and it opens much more gentle. So you don't get injured. Okay. The, that mechanism of my parachute didn't work correctly. So I got the thwack, my head like 
180 miles an hour slammed off my chest and I strained some muscles in my neck. But what they thought it was, they thought it was just typical whiplash. Right. But that strains the muscles back here. So I was getting treated for that whiplash and it wasn't working. And after about maybe six to eight months of physical therapy and training, I was still on light duty because they're like, you got to let that heal. And they were like, listen, we don't know what's going on here. We're going to have to do something. A friend of mine sent me to this clinic in San Diego. He said, hey, go check these guys out. They've had a little uh, success. You know, go check them out. So I went up there, paid my own money, and they found the problem right away. They did kind of a lower version of what, what I'm, we're doing now. We've expanded on it tremendously. But And the, the founder of that clinic, um, he was trying to explain to me what was going on in my neck. And when I told him, I go, yeah, that's just a shear force, right? That's an engineering thing. I go, yeah, that's just a shear. He goes, how do you know that? And I said, oh, I'm in the military, in, in addition to being a SEAL, I work in the engineering department. And he says to me, have you ever heard of biomechanics? Said, no. He said, you should look into it. <laughs> so I didn't think anything of it at the time, but my neck problem got solved. I was back on duty. Then I was starting to get a little older. I think I was 37 at the time. Did some more missions. And I was about 12 weeks in with no shower, no hot food. I was dirty. And I was 37 years old. And I've been doing this for 13 years. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So then it came to me like, oh, I want to do what that guy did. We have strength coaches in the SEAL team. Someone works us out every morning. We have our own orthopedic clinic. And I was like, I want to learn that. So when I came back, the Navy was like, hey, why don't you go? They're like, oh, yeah, you fix your neck. Go take all these classes and we'll pay for it. And then about a year later, after they paid for all these classes and courses for me to go to about that stuff, they like to bring it back to the community. The orthopedic clinic called me up, said, hey, we got a kid here who's in Buds. He's a really good kid. His back hurts. You know, can you come over here and do your thing? So I was like, sure. So I went over there and I had to do an evaluation on this guy in front of the whole orthopedic clinic. And apparently what I did worked, solved his back problem. They called me like, yep, he's back in training. Great job. And I, that made me feel really good inside. Right. And I was looking for something to do on the outside anyway. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So when I got out, I opened up a little clinic. Um, one of my last parachute jumps with the parachute team was for the Kansas City Chiefs. And Lamar Hunt was the owner back then. He was a military fan, huge fanboy of the military. So we did a jump in and he was standing next to me before the game. And he, he started chatting me up. He goes, so oh, I heard you're getting out. What are you going to do? And I told him. And then he called over the head of marketing for the Chiefs and said, hey, do a demographic workup for, Don, for the Chief here. Uh, he did. He told me I need to either go to New York City or Miami Beach because they have the highest per capita spending on personal train. Yeah, and so, that's that's where we met. I, I think it was 2005 uh, when I moved down to Miami. So I got married in 2003. Uh, we bought five acres in Boca Raton. We were going to live in Boca, drove through the neighborhood, had a midlife crisis at 24, <laughs> and ended up buying a condo in South Beach in the Continuum. Amazing place, a who's who of South Beach. And I don't even remember how I got connected with you. I think it was maybe Vanessa that saw you first. I don't remember, but you were on Lincoln Road. 
right off Lincoln Road. Having lived in Miami, everyone down there has a personal trainer. They all think their personal trainer is the best. So you think about our listeners, whatever business they're in, there's always competition, but there are certain markets where it's going to be even more competitive. How did you differentiate yourself from all of the different types of personal training out there? How were you able to establish yourself? That's where I put the SEAL thing to work. So people found out very quickly that I was a SEAL and that kind of spread like wildfire. So I think a lot of people were back then were interested in that. There was a very high-end gym there and a few of the trainers found out where I did my training, found out I was a SEAL. So they came to me and brought me a lot of clients to solve the problems of their, their clients. So they wanted to start like a corrective exercise program and I had been studying biomechanics. So they wanted to know what it was about. And so I, a lot of these trainers came to me and just wanted to talk. They were interested in it. And then they started bringing me their clients. And then I was doing the evaluation on their clients and then training them together. And then they would go back to the gym and start having, that's where I've kind of got my foot in the door because I was having successes solving those people's problems. And the more I did, the more they kept bringing me. I think they ended up bringing me 300 plus clients. Wow. Um, So that kind of worked. So then they were going to start their own like corrective exercise program. And this gym was in the four seasons where the NBA teams stay. Seven foot two NBA guy walked in with a bad knee and he was like, hey, I heard you guys have a corrective exercise program. You know, who do I talk to? And I guess the trainer that they recommended, it kind of scared him because he's like, hey, this is an NBA guy. So the guy said, screw it. I'm bringing him to Donnie. And that's how I got my first NBA guy. What do you see from your perspective? There's a gym on every corner. There's a million diet plans out there. I myself love to absolutely kill myself in the gym, at least until I met you. I remember going to work out with you and we'd be done. I'm like, is that it? You're like, yeah, you did everything you needed to do. And I got the most results I'd ever had before with probably, I don't want to say the least amount of effort, but it felt like the right effort. What do you see as the problem in, I don't want to say society today, but it's not from lack of working out. Gyms are packed. What are some of the things that you see as like the biggest problem? What are people doing wrong? Why aren't they getting results? You have, if you can free the body up, if you have, if you have restrictions, like say you have a restriction in your shoulder or in your knee or something like that, um, you know, if, if you get your skeleton measured and your joints measured by a biomechanist and they say, Hey, you know, your shoulders not working properly. That also means it might be tearing itself up and it might not be functioning efficiently either. So you might be, you'd be better off getting, You bring your car in and it's running horribly. The first thing they do is tune it up before they diagnose anything. So they put it back the way it's supposed to be, and then they look for problems. And I view that as the same way. So there are people out there that they don't know how to use their body correctly. So they're, they're not lifting and they're not using their body properly. And by properly, I mean, you know, by the structure alone, you know, their shoulders misaligned or their head's crooked for some reason. And it's just hindering their performance. And then some people just like to get a, they think that you got to be 
collapsing on the floor in a puddle of sweat to get a good workout. And that's not untrue because if you're mechanically sound, you can beat yourself to death in the gym like that if you want to be a a high high endurance athlete, a high level endurance athlete, or even power lifter or Olympic lifter, you know, you're going to need that. But if you do it biomechanically correct, it gets a little easier for you. So a lot of the athletes that, that I've worked with over the years, they do see the same thing. They're like, oh, are you sure we're doing enough? And then when they start the season, they have no pain. And then everything's so much easier for them, they're actually surprised. If you focus on the function of the human body first, you know, because your shoulder joint looks like my shoulder joint. The basic architecture is the same. The tissue mechanics are the same. So when you make the mechanics better, you know, the car's running smoothly. And then, you know, if you want to become a race car or a truck, then you go that way. So you mentioned you got your first NBA athlete. Once you had him and started to see some progress, did that lead to other NBA athletes? Because again, I know in Miami, probably like every major market and in these pro with the pro athletes, right? Everyone's coming to them saying, Oh, my financial advisor is the best. My trainer's the best. Oh, this guy will fix you go do this workout. Like they're hearing that nonstop. And of course, NBA teams are going to hire the best of the best. They've got to have high performing athletes. They're typically coming from a top university, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan that are going to have the best trainers, doctors, physical therapists, like how were you able to get your first NBA athlete, which we talked about, but then did that lead to other pro athletes? Yeah, they talk a lot because they, they say the same thing. They'll tell all the teammates, oh, I, I found the best guy. Right. And a lot of times the, the, a lot of people will switch and then they don't get the results. So it's, it, it helped. You get that result and then you get a teammate and then you get the result. You get the same result, like fixed his knee problem. Then we got another client in who had knee problems and shoulder problems, but some of them are skeptical. So what we ended up getting is a lot of the veterans. We weren't getting the young guys. We were getting guys that were banged up because we solved this guy's knee problem. He goes and tells this whole team, Hey, this guy solved my knee problem. Then they're talking like you got phone calls Got a shout out from that guy's coach on ESPN, so that didn't hurt. But uh, you did. I got another. I got one of his teammates soon after that who had knee and back problems. Okay, solved both of those problems. So then it got. Then it, it just started to grow from there. The word of mouth amongst them. But they always called each other to find out, like, hey, is this guy legit? Because by the time you're a veteran, you've tried twenty trainers, you've had ten physical therapists, you've been on four or five teams already. So the yeah, it took a long time to get known enough where you start getting random people coming in who you didn't get directly introduced to. So I've seen it online, so I'm sure it's public information. You did land one of the most high profile athletes in the NBA. You want to tell us who that was and what were some of his issues, how you fixed them? Yeah. So I can't tell you what the issues were, but right. if you, I can't tell you what the causes were, but um, you know, it's, if you Google it, it'll, it'll come up and say, you know, how, Le, how, how LeBron James fixed his back. So I guess I didn't know this at the time, but LeBron had been suffering back pain for, I think six, seven years, um, on Google, you'll see, you know, a decade. Um, he, he came to, to our gym in Miami 
and he was training with my partner and they just stopped and he said, Hey, my back hurts. So my partner, my partner, how we ended up business partners, he was very big into jujitsu. Um, he had a herniated disc in his neck and I had solved his herniated disc problem in his neck. So he always said, if I ever open up a gym, I'm going to partner up with Donnie. So that's how that whole thing uh, sorted out. But uh, so he, he just came up and he goes, Hey, you got to, you got to evaluate LeBron right now. I was like, yeah, okay. So I did, um, found his problem. But then from the business side of everything turned into a little bit of a disaster because now the, the medical staff from the team he was on had to be involved. Nike had to be involved. So, you know, now from me seeing him one-on-one for just a day turned into about 25 different people with their hands on it. Uh, and it was a lot of pushback. You know, they wanted to, you know, Nike wanted to put their own people in there. Cleveland was like skeptical. And, you know, I, I don't blame them because there's a lot of, one of the things in professional sports, like you said, is everybody has a guy and everybody wants to interject their guy and then the team loses control over it. So it's, you kind of understand why they push back. But, um, so I didn't see him after that. All I did was the, the measurements and the evaluation, I didn't see him. And then that whole thing happened in the background and they just got a call one day and they said, hey, LeBron's on his way to see you. Uh, and he's coming by himself, you know, no managers, none of his staff. So he came in, we were about halfway through the program that I designed for him. And I was behind him at the time and he just looked at me over his shoulder. He said, you just released my back. Um, in the so first session. Was, yeah, first session, okay. he just looked behind me and goes, you just released my back. So this was right before the season was supposed to start. This is late September, I think. He came in for about a week. And uh, he was very guarded. We didn't talk at all. So no feedback from him. That was the only feedback I ever got was that one day, first session. He's like, you just released my back. And so I worked with him about a week and they went, they left. They went back. He had to check in for training camp. Um, I gave the, 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 the staff, the, the program, I said, hey, if you guys, I, I think it's working keep doing if he sa- if he says it's working keep doing this and you know he'll be good to go and they were like yeah no problem so about 2 weeks went by and then it hit ESPN that he had to have a, a shot in his back and everybody freaked out um and I was like well whatever i didn't think anything of it like well maybe it didn't work or you know i i mean i'm just saying that i i thought it worked but, <laughs> uh so then i you know it was on the news. It was a disaster for two, three days on the news. And then I got a call from his people and they said, Hey, can you come up here right away? And you uh, say up here, you had to, you moved, you ended up moving, right? uh, Well, I just, I not right away that I just went up to see what was going on. And uh, so I had, I went to Cleveland and uh, just stayed at a hotel near his house. And, you know, when I finally got to them, they wanted me, they had to sign all these non-disclosures and stuff like that. And they said, hey, you know, I said, what, do you, what am I doing here? And they said, oh, he said what you did before was working. He wants to start back up and see if it gets better. So I did. And I worked with him a week. He still didn't say a word. Nobody said a word, like no feedback. I was back at my hotel. The car was supposed to pick me up. So I was coming back to Miami. And then, you know, the, the, the person in charge of all his businesses came in and said, hey, can you stay for, you know, till the end of the month? Stayed till the end of the month. Same thing. I was about to leave. Came back. She said, hey, can you stay for the next three months? So I stayed for the next three months. And then at the end of that three months, 
I went to his house and his mother just asked him right in front of the whole group, Hey, LeBron, how's your back? And he was like, he goes, huh, I haven't thought about my back in about two weeks. And I was like, okay, so it, it was working. It, so it kills me because you're like, you're so nonchalant about everything. Oh, yeah, it was 3 a.m. I'm in the desert. I fixed this vehicle. We're in combat. Oh, yeah, LeBron James comes in. No feedback. Is that just a natural mental toughness? You're not up and down. Is that something you developed in the military, being in those situations? Because I think about Again, our listeners in business, right? You go to a meeting, you meet with an investor. I've sold multiple businesses in the past, like going in and having that deal discussion. And then you're walking out of there thinking, did I say the right things? Did I do the right things? Like just all the mental tennis that people play. How are you able to stay so collected? I wasn't. Okay, good. You know, it's, <laughs> good. It's exactly like you just said. I don't care who you are. Like yeah. When you're doing deals that can change your life or you're doing things that can change your life. There's, you're never, your mind's never at rest. You don't know if, you know, in SEAL teams, if one mistake, you could be booted and that changes your life or somebody could die. So you're always nervous. You're always on edge. And I think just over time you get used to it. Um, but like, even I said, I don't, I still don't watch basketball because it's stressful. And I, you know, I don't mean I get panic attacks or anything like that, but it's like, you know, I ended up working for LeBron for three years straight and, you know, after those couple of months where he said he was finally pain-free and then I was watching games, like every time he landed the wrong way or took a bad step and he, you know, he cringed or he got bumped by somebody, I would get nervous. Okay, this has just been declared publicly that I solved his back problem. And it's like, what if it comes back? I have five or six billionaire clients and you get nervous when they come in because they're used to a certain level of customer service and you want to make sure you provide that. But if you don't hang around with any of them, you don't really know, you learn, you, know, you learn that their cars are never dirty. They're, they're, they've never seen a speck of dust in their house and their people kiss their butts all day and they make important decisions. So when you get around those people and you see how normal they are, you know, look at you out here doing your podcast. You saw, you, you've done big business deals. You've sold company, you've built up companies and sold them. Right Now we're just having a conversation. I'm nowhere near that level financially with my, I don't even know how I would do something like that. So, you know, that's, but, you know, I know, I know like you're just a guy who's had some significant accomplishments. So I don't think what you've done is any different than what I've done. No, I appreciate that. And thank you. And that really is the purpose of this podcast and the next phase of my life is taking all the mistakes and failures that I've made to inspire other people to make the most of their opportunity. Because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Get around the right people, the right coaches, the right leadership, CEOs, culture. So fast forwarding to where you are today. So you worked with LeBron James. I know a handful of other high profile athletes that you've worked with, but you were able to transition from being a personal trainer, just having your own shop to now you're running a business, which a lot of entrepreneurs aren't able to make that transition. I call them solopreneurs. You start a business, you're gifted at a certain thing, but to really scale and grow it, which is what I'm helping entrepreneurs do now is how do you take your gifting and scale and multiply to actually build 
enterprise value. So tell us about your current business and that transition that you were able to make. Yeah, started started with a little tiny thousand square foot place. What I quickly realized and what I wanted to do the entire time, I just didn't have the platform, was start teaching the biomechanics because people talk about it all the time, but they miss the bio. So because it's very, very biology intensive. So after I started having some successes, it was actually shocking me how successful the application of biomechanics was. So I decided to teach it. And my partner was a very successful, he's very charismatic, he's very business oriented. So when I paired up with him, he was, everything he's strong at was pretty much everything that I needed to go into business. So that's why we partnered up together. So it worked out well there where he provided that platform where I could start teaching. So we, we opened up a certification course. And of course, everybody was like, oh, this is the same stuff that they did to like a LeBron and the other athletes. So let's go take that course. So we started, the course exploded. The first one we did sold out in four minutes. Is um, it online or in person or... No, it's in person because okay. it's quite intensive. It's it's a it's very hands on. It's not um, something you can just click on online and right. go through and get a certification. Okay. So, um, and then we started getting some gym owners who would come. the The location we have in Miami, the biggest feedback we get is it feels different. There's a different vibe in there. Like the energy is different. So we've gotten a few gym owners that when they came to Miami, like, Hey, we want to open up a DBC. So now, so they've converted their gyms to our gyms. So we have one in uh, NorCal and then one in San Diego as well. So now we have three locations. Uh, That was kind of easy because they were already gym owners. So we had to give them some tips on how to manage the gym and and things like that. But, um, and, and, you know, I learned kind of the hard way about how to structure. You know, we have 21 trainers. And when I had my first gym, I was just letting the trainers give me a little bit percentage of the money they made. So like that didn't work out structural wise. So now we charge the trainers rent. Um, so we get a steady income and, you know, it's cheaper, it's cheaper where we are, where they don't have to, um, go rent their own spaces and, and open up their own gyms and, do the managerial stuff. So, you know, I don't really train that many people every day anymore. I I'll see a few clients in Miami, but I travel too much. But now I have to do, you know, the business owner stuff. It's like, you got to schedule the certifications. How much do you charge? What's the market doing? Um, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a, a little bit of a, a pre-recession here. So trainers that don't make a lot of money, you can't really afford to come to Miami. You know, the flights and the hotels are now more, expenses in the certification course right so you get these dips and now you know we we just renovated a new building that's a lot bigger and then the construction woes and the permitting it wasn't a gym before so you have to convert that so i feel like i was a quick learner from that rodney dangerfield show back to school where he goes back to business school and then finds out the hard way about the fire codes and things like that right right one of the challenges in scaling a business. So you, again, obviously super smart, dedicated into the details. When people scale a business, sometimes the product 
loses integrity, especially something as complicated as what you're doing. Every person's body is different and functions in a different way, could have different complications. Like, how are you able to maintain your integrity? Our certification courses are hard. We've had medical doctors come through, chiropractors. I get a lot of engineers that come through the level one certification. So I think they think I'm maybe a high-ranking nerd that they want to learn from because there's a lot of engineers out there that are making products for sports performance and things like that, but they don't, they're having a hard time getting their hands on the athletes. So they're not really getting good data. They're not getting good feedback. And, you know, they focus a lot, like everybody wants to get their, their little product on an NBA team, but it's like, no, because if you only sell one to an NBA team, you sold one. Right. Who cares? You know, you need to apply to the masses because you need to sell a million of these things. But they're they think that by getting the the famous athlete or the celebrity that their their business is going to explode. But it, it doesn't really work that way. So you know, you have to to us to us we don't care who it is. You know, the we just want to make people better functioning human beings. So yeah, we get we get some high profile athletes and, and celebrities, but we still work with the general population. You know, probably more. So you can't put yourself in too narrow of a niche like that. You got to think about business wise too, because you've got people working for you now. You got to, that, that income has to be there. You have to grow. Right. You think about in business, everyone wants to go land a fortune 500 company as a client or, you know, one of the recognizable logos to put on your website, but guess what? Everybody's going after them. So going after you know, the small to medium sized businesses can often be more stable. Uh, and, and like you said, it's, you know, it's a bigger pool uh, to fish from. So uh, just kind of wrapping up here, I, I wanted to talk about, again, just that transition that you made, you know, from being a Navy SEAL, like, what did you learn from that? Are there any best practices that you can share with our audience that, you know, maybe the, you know, general public may not know of, uh, some disciplines that you used in, in growing and, and scaling your business that, you know, if they didn't serve in the military, they wouldn't have those. People have heard of Murphy's laws and there's some, there's some military Murphy's laws, right? And so it's it, Murphy's law. I'm Mike Tyson used one. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So and then one of our one of our uh, very uh, popular business clients, um, he 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 spoke at one of our courses, and he he kind of emphasized the same thing. He said, "Hey, listen, stick to your plan, but be prepared to pivot." So in the SEAL teams, we used to do you know we do a mission planning, and then we have what we call the murder board. So you would you would bring in people who don't really know the the mission right off the bat, and then you walk them through it, and they're they're intentionally there, even you know antagonistically, trying to trying to murder your plan. So find things you didn't think of, like what could possibly go wrong, and then you make contingencies for that. So I think a lot of people when I first came out, like oh you got to have a business plan, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and people. It's, it's kind of common out there. It's like, no, stick to your plan, stick to your plan. But I, I don't agree with that. I think you need to pivot. I, I wish I would have known how to pivot earlier because, you know, you're, 
you may have a strong conviction about what you think is going to happen with the business. Like I, I've met some trainers, like I only want to train athletes. I'm like, well, you're going to have to get some results with your regular clients before an athlete's going to trust you. Like, you know, somebody comes to you and an athlete's like, oh my, I got a bad knee. Okay. How many knees have you fixed before? Um, you know, they're going to want to know. And was this person an athlete? Like you got to work your way into, you got to pivot. So what you think may be the market, what you, how much money you, you might think you need, or you don't think you need a partner. You don't think you need an advisor. You don't think you need a mentor. Um, you know, if you may, you may not, but you should be prepared to, to, you know, every little obstacle you hit, like, okay, how do I get around this? Like, do I need help or do I not need help? Or maybe I'm wrong. You know, admitting you're wrong is a big thing in the military. It happens freely. It's unbelievable. That was one of the first things, you know, in the, in the, in the military versus civilian world. In the military, right away, people, like, they tell you that a military person will usually tell you that they screwed up before you find out. Um, and that's it's a culture. So that's encouraged in the culture because then it's like, okay, let's fix it now before it becomes a problem. And I think that's just one little culture. So I think if, you're, if your plan's not working, you, you need to pivot quick. And you need to be honest with yourself. Like, hey, this isn't, like, I, I knew right away that when I was starting business, like, I didn't have the platform. I didn't know how to launch a certification course that was going to sell out in four minutes and um, do all these things. I knew I wanted to teach it, but I didn't know how to do it. And then when I met my partner, it was like, that's his, that's his thing. So it's one of those things like, hey, do I need a partner yet? Yeah, I don't think either one of us would be where we are now if we didn't have each other. Because I think my strengths are his weaknesses and, and, and my weaknesses are his strength. So it's, 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 it's great. Or it couldn't have, couldn't have worked out any better. Yeah, and so that's a, a great place for us to, to close out here. Because one of the things that I tell all entrepreneurs and business leaders is every decision gives you feedback. So whether it's right, wrong, you, you, you make that decision, be decisive, uh, get the feedback, you know, read and then react and make more decisions, gives you that feedback faster. So, you know, it, it's always good to have a business plan, have the blueprints, uh, you know, design uh, the structure that you want. But like you said, you know, be willing to adjust and pivot uh, but if you're not making decisions and pushing the business forward, you don't get that feedback. So everything looks good on paper. Uh, and then when you try to apply it and start moving things forward, so that gets the momentum, the progress. And uh, look, I'm a, I'm a college dropout. I started my first business out of my apartment, a couple hundred bucks. Definitely didn't have any formal training, any business plan. I just had the commitment to succeed, the right mindset made decisions and you know the the good ones I leaned into and the ones that weren't the right decision that gave me feedback to you know to make more positive decisions. So Donnie, I want to thank you for being on the show. I, I know our listeners will be inspired by your your story. Thank you again for your service and uh, thanks for being on the House of Bricks. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, Donnie.